Hello, everybody. Welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and join us today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches. We have the folks who help others create their businesses. And on the other side of that coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers as you market and grow. If you're one or more of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also check us out on iTunes. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show. Be sure to subscribe. You will have hundreds of episodes on a variety of topics related to business creation immediately available with fresh content, including this episode added every Tuesday afternoon. Be sure to leave a five-star rating because every five-star rating helps us help more business creators just like you. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit Unique, And this is something that I think we all enjoy every so often, whether you're an entrepreneur and you remember those days when you used to work in the corporate world, whether you're an entrepreneur who works with corporate clients and wonders why the heck this stuff still goes on, or whether you're in a job or you're working for a corporation as an employee and you see this pretty much every day of the week. So what we're going to be talking about today is life in corporate America. And this is a very, very interesting topic for me because I just love to have these conversations about what goes on in corporations. I'm reminded of some of my old war stories and of some of my own work with clients who serve the corporate world. I hear these stories all the time. And to have us excuse me, to have us explore this topic today, I Sorry about that. My cat jumped up on my lap, and our listeners know that uh, our office is Panthers. They live here and they work here. To explore with us today, we have the authors of the brand-new novel, BS Incorporated, Jennifer Rock and Michael Voss. So, Jennifer and Michael, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Well, as I said, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. When we had the opportunity to bring you guys on Business Creators Radio Show, I almost, in fact, you can still see the cracks in the ceiling where my head hit the ceiling from how high I jumped with excitement over the opportunity to have this topic. So just to tell everybody a little bit about Jennifer and Michael, Jennifer Rock and Michael Voss had the good fortune to work for and with companies that span industries and impact from privately held startups to Fortune 50 powerhouses to now their very own communications agency. Both of the authors live near Minneapolis, where they work as speakers and consultants. And as I mentioned, their debut novel, BS Incorporated, hilariously exposes life in corporate America. So this is going to be just kind of a freewheeling conversation. Um, as everybody knows, we have some preset questions, but the conversation will probably just flow naturally, and we'll probably end up sharing a few war stories. But let's just get started and ask Jennifer and Michael, what brought you to this point of your intersection of brilliance and passion, and why did you write this book? Sure, um, great first question, and um, and it's uh, it's a it's a funny story as as is our book. 
Um, we have uh, worked in corporate America um, between the two of us more than 40 years, um, always within the communications industry, and um, we were afforded a, a, a really unique vantage point in corporations. Um, communications people often um, are the right hands of the C-level executives. Um, we are in charge of keeping some of those stories out of the headlines. Um, so the, that dirty laundry does not get aired. Um, so we knew a lot of secrets, and we saw a lot of things happen behind the scenes. And um, unbeknownst to either one of us, we, we separately were keeping notes for years and years, copious notes. Um, we were taking notes in meetings. We were taking notes about the crazy people we worked with and the things that we had seen. And uh, it all led up to a really awful, soul-sucking meeting we were in one day, and uh, we escaped. We uh, we went to a bar patio, to be honest, and had a couple <laughs> cocktails. We swapped some war stories, and we said, you know what? Someone should write a book about this. And then we realized, wait a sec, we should write a book about this. We both kept enough notes, and we had some stories that were just begging to be shared. That's fantastic. So uh, i got to ask this question. How much of the story is fiction and how much is based on your own personal experiences? I went to the website for the book and I saw sort of the plot line. So I got to wonder what really happened. So the, the short answer to that, Adam, is uh, more than you might think, but less than you might hope. Uh, but the, long, the longer answer is there are a lot of uh, – specific situations that actually happened to us that we worked into the book, but overall the story is fiction. Now, it's a, it's a fairly common story uh, that happens with a lot of companies. They, they get on a, a huge and fast growth spurt. They have a difficult time managing that growth. They begin to spiral out of control, and sometimes they make it, sometimes they don't. So that's a, that's a fairly common story and certainly something we experienced. Um, the, the bulk of our time working together, Jennifer and mine, was at Best Buy's uh, headquarters, which is based here in the, in the Minneapolis area. So we didn't write the Best Buy story, but we certainly took a lot of those situations and spun it into a story that I think you would recognize, regardless of what company you've worked for, and it, even a, a big company or a small company, there are certain situations and certain um, experiences that we all have in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. So for our listeners, just tell us a little bit about the plot line. I want you to tell us about it in your own words. Sure. Um, so BS Incorporated is the story of a big, dumb, but very well-meaning company based in the Midwest that is spiraling out of control. And we take you behind the scenes to a group of smart, uh, funny, cynical middle managers who are just trying to get through the day-to-day -day slog of the jargon and the bureaucracy and, and earning a paycheck. And these middle managers band together when they realize that they might be the only ones who can save this company from itself. Yeah. And uh, don't we know that story of we have the people, especially in middle management, who have to sit by and wonder just what the heck is going on here? And I discovered this <laughs> the hard way. When I had my first quote-unquote real job after I came out of college, and oh yeah, this company touted itself as being so innovative, so interested in employee feedback, and you know we're all a team and we don't have rank in anything like that. But boy, just a few months in, I discovered how completely untrue that really was. Not only was that not the case, but 
I found myself in a situation where your relative value as a human being and your perceived ability to even give a truthful answer to any question was determined by your position on the org chart. Uh-huh. That's exactly right. But, you know, Adam, people yeah. are our most important assets. <laughs> right, right. But we don't, we, unfortunately, we don't see that respected uh, too often. So, no, uh, not at all. Yeah, so let's dive into some of your readers here for a little bit. Now, uh, what kind of feedback have you been getting from the readers who currently work in corporate America who see this story? The feedback has been absolutely phenomenal, and we just hear great stories, things like, did you sneak into my company and and base this (laughs) on my personal experiences? Or, you know, things like these are the exact types of people that I work with every day. We've had readers, uh, people that we know, come up to us and say, I know exactly who this character is based on. It's based on so-and-so. And And, we have one character in the book. His name is Lyle Kirkland, and he's sort of your prototypical evil executive. And we have people who swear they know who Lyle Kirkland is, but each of them are, are referring to somebody different. And so for us, that just tells us we struck a chord and we're, We've Uh developed a story and developed kind of a a world here that people recognize and they feel like we're really representing what they go through every day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know from my own personal experience with with the company, I remember when I was transferring from one department to another after I'd been there for two years, and I got this coaching from my supervisor who was warning me that, you know, when you go into this other department, you carry baggage with you. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I mean, do people ever forgive and forget? Now, he actually liked my response to that because I said, oh, well, you know, I've been to airports, and what I've noticed is that people who are carrying baggage tend to go places. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so what I'd like to get into a little bit is uh, what are some of the – horror stories, if any, that you've heard from readers, you've seen some some of your own experience that influenced the book itself or the work that you do, Uh, what are some real-life examples so that anybody listening to this who thinks they're alone isn't alone? Right. So, wow, where do we even start? Um, I'm going to start with, I think, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to start with um, one of the the biggest um, misfortunate uh, situations that so many employees go through right now, uh, which are reorganizations and layoffs. Um, We we spend a lot of time um, um, talking about what happens behind the scenes and things like that um, within BS Incorporated. And um, unfortunately, it's such a common um, experience now in the workplace, and uh, we actually start out the book with um, our brand new character who is, you know, she's brand new to the company, and her name is Anna, and she's a go-getter, and she's ambitious, and her very first day, she gets caught up in a reorg, and her boss changes, and she essentially gets demoted um, in her very, you know, first introduction to the company. And that is not far from the truth of some of the stories that we have heard from employees. Um, Companies reinvent themselves so often and sometimes constantly. And, in fact, the cliched phrase that we use in the book is, you know, in this company, change is the only constant. Um, That's a very common experience. And, and unfortunately, we've had a lot of experience, uh, Mike and I, in our own careers with mass layoffs. 
And we wanted to really um, show what that feels like, um, not only from the employee perspective, which is, again, um, such a, a heartbreaking and common experience for employees now, but also from a manager's perspective. So we show mass layoffs happening to the people who are actually orchestrating those layoffs, trying to make good decisions, even though they're having to just tell the company line. And we wanted to put readers right in the room with that young first-time manager having to lay off an employee that they consider a friend. And that actually was ripped right from my career and my experience. And I've heard from other managers as well um, who have said, yeah, that, that was my experience too. You know, I, I, I cried so hard that um, that the employee who was getting laid off comforted me, and, and she was the one losing her job. So it, it's that type of experience that we really wanted to, again, put readers right in the room and make people say, wow, I'm not the only one who went through that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so, uh, so what, what, what else? We've heard from you. Uh, do you have any other really good ones? Um, you know, I've got a couple of specific layoff-related stories, actually, that didn't make it into the book, yeah. but these, give, these are the kinds of examples that, uh, you know, that make you cringe and sort of laugh at the same time. So I was working for a company once, and we went through layoffs in our department, and all the individuals were uh, notified, and then those of us who were left and were able to keep our jobs got together in a conference room uh, to discuss what had just taken place. And they put up on the screen in the room on a PowerPoint slide the names of all the unfortunate individuals who had lost their jobs. Well, unfortunately, somebody had forgotten to get to one of those individuals that he was sitting in the room and saw his name on the slide and then got up and left oh. the room with a manager trailing after him to give him his severance package. So these are the types of ridiculous, absurd things that can happen. In another case, uh, we went through a round of layoffs. I was working at a company that, that was in uh, a suburban area, and across the street from the headquarters was an apartment building with an outdoor pool. And as the managers were going through selecting the employees who were losing their jobs, they couldn't find a gentleman named Matt. Nobody knew where Matt was. Eventually, he uh, made his way into the office, and they found him, and they laid him off. And later, later at, the, at the bar, he told his friends he had gone out the night before, wasn't feeling too well, so he went over to sleep it off by the pool while all of his colleagues were getting laid off and nobody could find him. Oh, boy. You know, uh, something else that I like to share with people, especially if they're moving into a corporate job or they're interviewing or they're looking at an opportunity, is look for warning signs. And I'm going to give you a warning sign that I just completely missed. And I think part of it was, I was 22 years old at the time, and the other part of it was is I wanted to break into an industry, and I was just so excited to have any opportunity to get there, plus the job I had currently at that time was just that crummy that I was willing to overlook it. So here's an example. I show up to interview for this company, and uh, they agree to meet with me at 7 a.m. so that I can do the interview and then still be at my job in time for the day to begin. So I show up promptly at 6.45 a.m., and I'm left sitting there until 7.30, when the person who, uh, if I were to get that job, would be my supervisor, comes huffing in and says, oh, well, I, I didn't know that uh, we had a meeting today. I don't really go by my calendar. Funny, oh, right? wow. Now, this was a – and I write about this in uh, my chapter in Journeys to Success in Millennial Edition, which is you know one of the Amazon bestsellers I participate in. I – mention that that was one warning sign and another was 
this was a mid-size staffing company that did both temporary staffing and like headhunting, executive placement, that sort of thing. And I was told by this person that after I worked for the company for one year, that I would get my name put on the front door. That was one of the perks. After you're there a year, you get a name on the front door. Now, during the interview process, I discovered the company had been in business for over 20 years and that they had about 25 employees. It did not occur to me to ask, why is it if you have been in business for 20 years and you say you have 25 employees, why is it that there are four names on the door? The two gentlemen, <laughs> you, future supervisor, who happens to be the owner's daughter, and your office manager. Didn't occur to me to ask that, but once I <laughs> accepted that job, I found out, especially as I started getting closer to a year, uh, not to get into too much detail, but there was a, I definitely started to feel the pressure of why are you still here, and, I, and it just became pretty obvious that they wanted to get me out before the uh, the year was over, and uh, not to belabor this call because I'm actually leading to a question here, is uh, they came up with a really lame-ass excuse to get me <laughs> to resign. And it was so bad that I was able to give a truthful explanation of me voluntarily resigning, and I got unemployment benefits with no argument whatsoever. Well, good That's for you. Bad. And you know that there's a term for um, there's a term for that, which is getting crosswalked out of a company. Okay. When you 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 get um, that is that jargony term for um, being uh, yeah crosswalked out. So you um, you know you uh, you basically uh, you leave the company on your own accord in air quotes, you know, so to speak. Right. Right. Okay. So I never heard that term before, crosswalk. That's very good. So the question I'm leading to, uh, Jennifer and Michael, is what are some signs that people should look for during the process of considering a job opportunity that should turn them running screaming from the opportunity? Uh, you know, so I think there are a, a few different signs you can look for when you're considering joining an organization. Uh, you know, Jennifer made a joke earlier about the uh, idea that people are our greatest assets. And every company likes to tout that they're all about their employees. They're all about their people. And, you know, I think it's really important as you, if you're showing up at a company and you're interviewing, of course the people you talk to are going to put on the best face and tell you the, the greatest stories that you've ever heard about working there. Pay close attention to the dynamics and the conversations that are going on in the cube farms that you walk through on the way to the interview. Are people smiling? Are they enjoying? Are they having a good time? Or are they heads down at their desk and does it feel like people are on pins and needles and really aren't free to enjoy themselves while they're at work? I think that's that's one really important thing to look for. Yeah, and I would I would also add on to that that um that yeah, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of cues, and again, the interview process is tough because again, like Mike said, everybody's putting on their their best faces. Um, you know, I, I said earlier that the communications team often um, is in charge of keeping the craziness out of the headlines in the hallways. Um, 
I would see if you can figure out what the turnover to, the turnover is for the communication department because if they're screaming right. and running from the company, they, they probably know some inside scoop um, that maybe hasn't made the headlines right now. So um, that might be another indication. And then I'll just add one more, Adam, and, and that is anybody who uh, – badmouths a previous job, a previous boss, um, a previous role or anything like that. And, and I'll give you just a quick story on that. When we were at Best Buy, we recruited a big name executive who was a really stellar hire for the company. And by all indications, he seemed like a great guy. My first meeting with him as the communications director, he told me that at his previous company, the communications team wasn't very good. They were always trying to put words in his mouth and tell him to say things. And uh, we went to the first big event where he was being introduced to the leadership team of the 400 highest ranked people in the company. And he and I were prepping before the meeting. And I told him, you know, here at Best Buy, we keep things casual. We want you to come across as authentic and really just be yourself. He went up and the first thing he said was, I was meeting with the communications team before this. And, you know, those people always try to put words in my mouth. <laughs> to me, that was a warning sign. This guy was not all he was cracked up to be. Again, I'm going to add one more, wow. and then, then we're done, I swear. But, um, no, no, you can keep, the, you keep going. We have time. <laughs> for the employee who is, who is interviewing, um, you know, you talk, about, you talk about your salary, you talk about employee perks, and this is going to be a little counterintuitive, I think, but the stranger the employee perks that are offered, they're probably trying to cover up either that this is a horrendous place to work, a soul-crushing place to work, or that um, that the salary is maybe is not as competitive, or they're going to overwork you. And so examples, and, and some of these are actually in BS Incorporated in our novel. Um, in our past, we have worked for companies that um, offered such odd perks as free personal waxing services for employees, or discounted wow. haircuts in the company store. That is absolutely God's honest truth that those are true stories. Um, I've seen companies, again, it's usually the upstarts who offer, you know, free beer taps are flowing on Fridays or it's, you know, ice cream on Tuesdays. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And that is a really attractive offer when you're sitting across from a potential employer and thinking this is going to be great, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to get my back waxed and I'm going to get beer on Fridays. What's not to love? Dude, I'd put a really big tap, red flag we're on that. Tap the keg on Friday. Woo! <laughs> and you're probably going to be drinking as the company goes under <laughs> because that's exactly the the. The company that had the kegger on Fridays, um, a company I did not work for, but but one that I know of, actually did go under because, of course, they were spending so much money on free employee perks. Um, they didn't actually, um, they weren't actually able to hold a client. So um, again, a huge red flag. You know, don't be um, seduced by the free perks. Okay, so for somebody who's looking for a job. Should they just be looking for the big bucks and the good health benefits? No, I, I would say if you're looking for a job, find the right cultural fit. Um, in my personal right. experience, the, the best job I ever held, I started out making, I think, $29,000 a year. And um, I loved it there, and I stayed there for 15 years, and I ended up making a, a very uh, healthy and generous income. But it was because I loved the culture, and I was given a chance to grow 
and become uh, more skilled at my profession. And if I had I turned that job down because the money wasn't there, I probably wouldn't be in the position I'm in today, which is running my own company and promoting a novel I'd just written. So, you know, we Adam, we make, poke a lot of fun at the at the workplace, and there's certainly no shortage of material there. But if you find right. the right fit, um, you know, we're not anti-business by any stretch of the imagination. Companies do great things for their communities. They do great things for individuals. They do great things for their customers. Um, so to me, it's all about finding the right fit, and everything else will fall into place. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say a word, and I have a feeling that this is just going to spark a conversation that might take up the rest of our time. So I'm taking a risk here, <laughs> because I'm probably going to jump in on this too. This one word, meetings. Yes. Oh, it's the, the M word. Lay it on me. <laughs> the bait yeah, of our existence. I love it. <laughs> Right. Um, we um, we do, of course, talk a lot about meetings in DS Incorporated because that, of course, is um, is the heart and soul and the um, again the bane of our existence in in corporate America. Um, we uh, especially um, made fun in the book of the idea of tracking every meeting that you're in because um, the company wanted to be able to go back on, in some time tracking system um, invented by some horrible, horrible people, consultants, if you will, um, to, okay. to be able to track how people were spending their time and in what meetings they were spending it. Um, again, a true story that is in the book um, is that we were in a job for a couple of years, um, had to track our hours in 15-minute increments and out of a, you know, a very handy drop-down menu of 51 types of meetings and items and track all the time that you spent and how you spent your time in meetings. And there's a point, I think, when a company gets incredibly bureaucratic that you actually spend more time in meetings preparing for other meetings or tracking your time in meetings than you actually spend meeting for something productive. Uh, that's an interesting. Th that's an interesting take. All right. Uh, you know, my personal thing with it is, and I've seen this actually kind of radiate over to startup culture, where you have folks who come from corporate organizations, and then now they're starting their they're starting their own startup, and some of the corporate stuff comes with them. And what I see, unfortunately tend to follow along is a lot of the stuff about meetings. I have seen startups just fizzle out and die because they were so busy having meetings and meetings and meetings, they never took any action. And of course, I was that guy who would say, this meeting is over at 7.30 and it's 7.22. What are we doing in the next, next eight minutes? And I would be that guy who would say, but we've discussed this the past 12 meetings. We're going to see any action on this at some point. Right. So what would you recommend, Michael and Jennifer, based on your experiences, real and translated into fiction and otherwise, to help companies do their meetings the right way? So I think there's a few ways to help companies uh, get better at doing meetings. Um, and, you know, one of them is simply to just hold standing huddles. Um, if, you know, particularly if you have a lot of team meetings within your department and you find yourself in, you know, various types of staff meetings, you know, you could have a 
staff meeting with your peers. You could have a staff meeting with the people that report to you. You might have a staff meeting of your bosses, uh, you know, peers, things of that nature. And um, these things could be handled with, um, you know, a two or three times a week standing huddle around your cube area or wherever your work workspace is. If you if you stay standing and you don't get comfortable sitting in a room, you're not going to kill an hour. You're going to get to what you need to get to so you can move on. Um, you know, another oh. thing that we we very often see in um, in large companies in particular, when you go into a meeting room, there will be um, a list of rules or suggestions on how to hold an effective meeting. And to me, that says the battle is already lost. <laughs> you, you have far too right. many meetings and you have too much of a meeting culture. If you have to train people how to be better at having meetings, maybe you should be training people on how to have fewer meetings and get some work done. Wow. So let me, let me get, make sure I heard this right. If you walk into the meeting room and they have a sign-up on the wall or a poster up on the wall about how to have effective meetings, you're probably already sunk. Right. And, um, and it's very common. You know, they, they bring in a consultant who um, creates really beautiful four-color posters around meeting principles yeah. and how to execute a meeting and how to follow up after a meeting. Um, it's not rocket science. Um, if you have to meet with somebody face-to-face -to, -face to get the work done, then you um, have a tight agenda and you you get through what you need to get through. You talk about what are the deliverables that you need to create coming out of that meeting, and, and you do it. Um, if you have to create a poster to explain what an effective meeting looks like, I agree. You've probably already lost the battle as a culture. Wow. And believe me, I've uh, when I was in the, in the corporate world, I sat through some absolute doozies. Uh, one comes to mind is that this is when I worked in healthcare contracting that I was tasked to attend some PSYOPs or ClinOps or some sort of meeting to happen once a quarter. And my entire contribution was to pre-submit one paragraph where I basically said, yes, we are dealing with out-of-network providers because our members go to Montana and get sick. And <laughs> I would have to sit in that meeting for almost to the very end because my agenda item was always at the end. Uh, read exactly what I had already submitted, oh, wow. which nobody had any questions. And I guess after about the fourth or fifth quarter came around, uh, I guess somebody went to my boss's boss and said that I looked tired and bored in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like I'm, I'm not going to deny it. <laughs> Because it's for me to be there. What do you want? What do you want me to say? This is not. There, there's no networking opportunity for me here. This is not how I'm going to get ahead in the world. Uh, this is a complete waste of my time. This is one of those types of things where uh, people uh, should submit stuff from the outside, and if the core group has any questions, they ask. Otherwise, that hour and a half could have been spent solving some out-of-network conundrum or something like that, or or processing sure. the latest batch of individual practitioner contract or something like that. It would have been a better use of my time. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, what, is, what does that do for, for anything? Uh, now, I think we've gotten into meetings here. I'm going to take another chance. And we're a little over halfway through our time here together, so now I'm taking a, a real chance. And I'm going to say another phrase that you've already mentioned. And I'm just going to let you react to it and tell me your stories. Cubicle culture. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Yeah, the cubicle culture is really interesting. Um, you know, the, one of the, the things that, that happens, right, is you spend enough time at work and so much time in your cubicle that you you try to make it uh, as homey as you can. Um, and that, that unfortunately very often results in these pictures you'll see on the front page of the local newspaper when there are layoffs, people carrying out their boxes as if they've, you know, they've lost a part of their lives walking <laughs> Walking out of the uh, walking out of the building when they lose their jobs, um, but the the cubicle culture is uh, is interesting in a variety of ways because there are so many things that can go wrong with it. From the the guy who eats the uh, the tuna fish out of a can with his fingers in the cube next door, um, to the the person who talks you know too loud on conference calls. It's uh, it's an interesting conundrum uh, in terms of how to get people together and allow them to work collaboratively collaboratively um, without sort of invading that personal space. Right. And, you know, there's the, there's the piece of it that, you know, how employees try to establish a culture and then what companies do to try to control the cubicle culture. Um, because, of course, a company doesn't want employees, you know, talking to each other too much over the cubicle walls or being too homey where they are. And so, you know, one of the, the battles that I think is really fascinating if you take a few steps back is the, the battle of the height of the cube walls. You see that in so many companies. And it's the, you know, the, um, the manager who wants to reduce the height of all the cube walls or take the walls away completely and have one of these beautiful open office spaces um, for probably oh, two reasons. Oh, oh, one. No, no. <laughs> one. I know, I know. I'm an introvert. Believe me. I my, makes my palms too. sweat, too. So it is either, and there's two reasons why you take away the walls. One is so that you have better sight lines to your employees, so you can make eye contact with them. You can see who actually has their butt in the seat that you can hold accountable for something. You know, it's a it's an accountability play by a manager. Um, or it's that trendy thing that says you're going to collaborate better um, if you take the walls down um, between employees. But as we know, um, living in the real world, what usually happens is that employees then cocoon because they have no walls, and so they put on the big headphones, they they play their own music, they um, or they go sit in the cafeteria where it's quieter, and and do their work from there. It's a backfiring principle. You have to have your employees keep the walls. Um, and the other play, and we talk about this in the book too because I think it's fascinating, um, is that employees have very little control over their environment in the cubes, right? So the managers decide, you know, what what height the walls are going to be and um, if there are rules about what you have on your desk or you don't have on your desk. Um, so what companies do, and I used to work for an architecture firm, so this is a true story, um, they put the thermostats, you know, on the walls in, you know, by the group of cubes so that employees can control the temperature. Um, yeah, those thermostats aren't actually connected to anything. Um, right. If you take the box off the wall, it's not hardwired actually into the HVAC system in most companies. Um, it's a productivity play and it, it what it does is makes employees believe they have control over their environment um, when it when it actually it's it's just a, a battery operated little box with a digital readout. Um, again, fascinating what companies do to try to make their employees feel um, like they have some say in the environment in which they work. 
And I've got one more uh, cubicle story for you here, Adam, that's going to tie together the, uh, the layoffs with the cubicle uh, culture. So we worked for a company that at one point decided it needed to cut costs and it was going to do so by laying off employees. But rather than doing one large uh, layoff on a single day, um, they were going to cut a little bit here and a little bit there over the course of several weeks and months. And uh, just as you might imagine, right, there's, there's all kinds of science on which day of the week is the best day to let people go. And I think if you've seen the movie Office Space, they joke about it in there, but that's absolutely true. And this company had landed on Tuesdays as the best day to let people go. And in, inside the company, it, the culture, it became known as Termination Tuesdays. And so people would just keep their heads low on Tuesdays, hoping that their manager didn't see them or find them or invite them to a meeting. And in, in that cubicle culture where people are often standing up and talking to each other over the walls, uh, Tuesdays became like a real-life game of whack-a-mole. You'd be standing up talking, you'd see your manager coming, and everybody would duck down. And then he would w walk through to the other side of the room, and a couple people might stand up and talk again, and he'd turn and look back, and people would duck down again. It was, uh, it was surreal, but absolutely true. Well, uh, there was this one company I worked for for four years. I've alluded to them already. And, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of positive stuff going on, I'll say. And for the first two years, I worked for a supervisor who was actually pretty cool. And I had a cubicle. It was right outside his office. And the people on either side of the cubicle were, I mean, he was, he was a director level. And there were three director's offices all in a row. So uh, the assistant to each one of those directors had their cubicles lined up. So it was me and two other assistants to directors. Uh, on the other side of the aisle was this other department where the head of that department was just an absolute, I mean, it was, it was, like, uh, it was like a horror film type level of <laughs> control uh, where they would write people up for having headphones. They would time how long people were in the bathroom uh, and, uh, oh. they, uh, when the and when the employees weren't there, she would come and search their desks and then give them lists of things that weren't supposed to be in their desk, in one case, wow. chewing gum. Oh, so wow. not, only, not only did they play this control freak game on their own departments, but they tried to lord it over the other departments, and sometimes there would be some uh, conflicts between uh, people at the director level of, you know, you do what you want in your department, but don't you start lording over my people. Well, one day I was, uh, I uh, swallowed something the wrong way. And you know what happens when you swallow something the wrong way. Uh, what do you do? You cough. <laughs> and so this, and so this department supervisor from Stalag five or whatever it was comes over and storms, <laughs> storming over and says, you're being really disruptive. You need to learn to control oh. your volume levels and, Puffs off. So um, as she was walking wow. away, because now everybody from their department and also the people sitting on either side of me uh, were watching the whole thing, um, I gave her what's known as the stoccaccio gesture, which is the one where you don't actually give the finger, but you put your fist in your elbow and you raise your arm. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, uh, we know it well. Uh, yeah, of course, of course, uh, somebody ratted me out, and uh, and then uh, you know the next day they say uh, we have reports that you gave so and so the finger, and I said I didn't give her the finger. So like, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna lie? It's like no, I'm not lying. I didn't give her the finger. I gave her the stoccaccio gesture. 
So whoever is giving you this information is taking you for a long ride. They might want to get <laughs> somebody who wears spectacles and has since he was five years old or what have what have you. And this was the baggage that my supervisor was referring to when I mentioned earlier in this call about you carry baggage and all that. Uh, and uh, uh, the, 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 but, the, but here's but here's here's the thing. Um, the director of that uh, of that department uh, who uh, was trying to uh, you know control freak not only her own department but the department's neighboring in in the cubicle area she ended up getting uh, quote unquote downsized it was actually more brutal than that as did her little sidekick enforcer the one I gave the, the gesture to and um, <laughs> even then with my very limited sense of the world because I was 24 or 25 years old uh, what I understood myself at the time is I wasn't playing for I wasn't playing for saying what I needed to say or do what I needed to do to get promoted or anything like that. In fact, uh, you know, the way I resolved the situation is I lied through my teeth and pretended to apologize, even though I wasn't sorry. Uh, and, I, and I'll say that now. Um, but. What I was looking for with that, with that story, and the reason I tell it now, 15 years later, with absolutely no remorse, and telling you I had no remorse at the time, uh, even though I think of myself as a pretty good person in situations, generally speaking, is I was establishing myself as somebody who stands up to just ridiculous bullshit, basically. And right. I was playing for the crowd of, all those people who were being brutalized in their cubicles day in and day out, and I was their voice. And because that, I, cause I, I, love... I looked around, I looked around, and I saw this is my cohort. This is these are the people that are going to be coming up with me, whether I stay in this company or I move out or I go entrepreneur or what have you. These people and these types of people are going to be my cohort. So this is who I want to bond with. I don't care about these directors who still think it's 1966. I'll be moving into their job or they'll be hiring me as a consultant. I don't care about what they think of my demeanor. I care about bonding with the folks that I'm going to be on a career path with. And uh, that's why I have no problem with it whatsoever to this day. Do you have a and problem? I'm sorry, Adam. I was just going to say, ultimately, it's, it's freeing, too, because when you have to uh, be so submissive to, you know, an environment or a leader who does not treat you well, that will eat away at you day to day. And and when you stand up for your own integrity, um, it's it's really ultimately freeing, and you'll be happier for it. Yeah, I was ha I was happy for it that day. I mean, I had already I had already I had already figured out because I had been in that company for a year. I already knew the culture. All I had to do was fake an apology and just signal to the, all the other people around me that I didn't really mean it. And uh, and the management they were so full of themselves that they would take my fake apology as me burying my soul and and you know getting down on one knee and begging forgiveness, whereas I was just going through the motions like whatever. So I don't have to hear about this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and uh, and see, another reason I use that story now is when I'm in situations where I'm talking about cubicle culture and how we do things more effectively, the reason I gave her that gesture was not because she asked me to be quiet. It was because of her attitude and the way she did it and the fact that she should not have approached me directly because she was not my supervisor. That should have gone through my supervisor. 
Um, now, had she approached me a little bit differently, she'd come over and said, um, hey, are you okay? <laughs> right. I just called the wrong, was like, well, well, you know, we can we can kind of hear you over here, and we just, uh, you know, want to make sure there's not too much noise. So if you could uh, sort of keep that under control, that'd be appreciated. And I just said, oh, sorry, that'd have been it. Right. Yeah. So uh, so I use it also as a lesson on how to communicate more effectively, particularly when we're dealing with cubicle cultures, and we're trying to lower those walls, and everybody's in close quarters, and things like that. So uh, in your travels and travails through life in corporate America, and especially this company, BS Incorporated, do you have any other cubicle heroes like me who uh, fought the power and uh, in their own way won? Yeah, actually, um, that uh, that is one of the lead characters in our book, um, whose name is Will Evans, and he he speaks for all of the utility players who we have dedicated the book to. These are the the employees who are the the first to come in in the morning. They're the ones who turn on the lights in the office. They're the the last car to leave in the parking ramp at night. Um, they are the employees who toil in relative obscurity and anonymity behind the scenes. And um, frankly, they save the butt of the company countless ways every single day and never quite get the recognition they deserve. And and, and that really is who we wrote this book for. Um, Those are the heroes in this book, Um, whether they are the the folks who who work in the warehouse or – or the uh, or our communications heroes who are, are working behind the scenes to save this company that they love. Um, we we know those employees. We've worked with them. We have been those employees, and um, you know we we wanted to write a book for them. We wanted to write a book that they would read in business class and on the way to some conference their company was sending them to, and uh, and they could say, yeah, you know what? I could stand up and cheer for these characters. These are my people. That's that's inspiring because you're absolutely right. And those are the people that I identified with were the ones who uh, they weren't the credit hounds. They weren't the people who uh, you know you always saw down outside the doors, always on cigarette breaks. They weren't the most visible people, but they were yeah. the ones that when you needed somebody to depend on and you needed things to run smoothly, they were the ones you turned to. Absolutely. And, and, you know, on, on a personal level, Adam, that, you know, again, as we said, we, we poke great fun at, at corporate uh, culture in the book. But on a personal level, you have these lifelong friendships that extend well beyond any job or any company or anywhere you're working. Um, I can't right. tell you the number of people I still keep in touch with from various jobs throughout my career, people that, um, yeah. you know, we – we call it being part of your crew because we think there's just something about when you're part of a crew that's like you, you have the same mindset, you have the same values, you have each other's backs. And um, we, we wanted to represent that in the story too because there's no doubt about it. You spend so much time at work. You build these lasting relationships, and that's also another theme of the story. Yeah, and, and I alluded to that a little bit earlier when I – described who actually was my audience when I made that gesture at that person. Uh, It wasn't management. It was the people around me because I recognized this is my networking group. These are the people that I'm going to connect with. And, and I was happy to be their hero and be their voice for a day. It certainly did not lower my cachet with them. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) 
In fact, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, in fact, as you mentioned, I'm still in touch with some of those people who were there that day. And this story sure. does occasionally come up in, you know, occasional conversations. Uh, these are people that I'm still connected with on social media, that sometimes I speak with about once a year. If I ever go back to where I came from originally and there's a poker game, some of those folks might be there. This is, uh, this is just my group of people, and that's what we recognize in these cultures that, and as I see it, in the old days, you went and you got a job, you worked for the company, you put up with their crap, but you stayed loyal, and after 40 years, you got the gold watch, the pension, and the shack down in Fort Lauderdale. Now, today, what many career coaches tell their clients is that you are, even though you work for a paycheck and you're an employee of a company, you are, in fact, the owner of an entrepreneurial venture, and the product is you. So you still go through many of those same marketing things that a small business would go through and, and, and do to grow themselves. And ultimately, they are responsible for their own success, which in a way is a detriment, but in another way is a great opportunity because now you know that you, know, you don't have to go work for Company A for 40 years and hope for the gold watch, that if you find that you've reached the end of your rope or you've gone as far as you can with this one company, you can just hop on over the competitor. That's very true. And, you know, like we said, like Mike said earlier, it's, it's about finding a culture. And, um, and when you find a company that you, you can make a difference in, a company that you fit into, a company where you, you find that crew of people who have your back and who support you, you know, that's, unfortunately rare these days and um right. and i'd say you know if you're out looking for a job if you're out interviewing um find find that you know find that work family find those people who are going to stick with you um every job every company certainly has its ups and downs um you want people who are going to support you and be there and have your back in the downs as as much as the ups and um you know i i can't tell you how um throughout my career uh, and again, we, we, we support this in the book, too, that the, the happy hours are just as important as the hours that you spend on your day job, um, because that's, you know, yeah. the happy hours, that's where relationships get made, that's where networks get established, that's where all the best stories are certainly told. And so um, that's where you, that's where you find where you fit um, from a, a very deep cultural perspective. And that's, that's where you form your network. And I can't say how important that is for your career. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So we got about eight minutes left, and I think that this would be a great place for us to wrap up. Happy hour. I remember a few of those, and I remember one time I imbibed a little excessively, and uh, stories were told about it for some time going into the future. I also remember the time that um, I was at a happy hour, and a coworker revealed her feelings toward me, and that was oh. some time as well. Uh, I had I had to quietly dispel rumors that I went home with her afterwards uh, because oh, that part wow. didn't happen. Uh, but let's just say I was getting the looks of eh, 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 for about a week afterward. So what happens at happy hour doesn't necessarily stay there. So <laughs> that is, that is good advice. Your experiences, 
your experiences, life in corporate America, and anything that goes on at BS Incorporated or any other company you've really or fictionally worked with, uh, what would you recommend to somebody to allow those happy hours to truly be happy so they're not, like, on their guard, carefully measuring every word, but at the same time, the things that don't stay at happy hour are things that are actually beneficial for your career. You know, I think I am a big fan of a smaller, intimate happy hour with, as we said, those kinds of people that you know have your back, again, that, that we call your crew. Uh, big happy hours can be fine, and they can be fun and allow you to network and and possibly bond with some, some people that you don't know as well. But I think very often our jobs are stressful enough, and happy hours are as much about a release as they are anything else. And when you have people who share that same mindset as you, people who will allow you to speak freely after a couple of cocktails and not um, allow that to go any further, those are the happy hours that I find both most enjoyable and also really most valuable. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just I'll just tack onto a, a, a story, and and I think happy hours, again, it, that is a very important part of the corporate culture. But I think the same rules hold true. You know, the, the articles that happen every single year around this time about how to be on your best behavior during a corporate a holiday party um, still hold true for happy hours through the year. To you know, be be cognizant of the number of drinks that you have. You know, be careful. Don't drink and drive. You know, all those good things. Um, a, a story from from my past was um, uh, a a very well-meaning happy hour that I think you know Mike had just said it's better when it's kind of a small, intimate, trusted group. Well, this was kind of a, a bad, big group of people. We had some folks visiting from our Canada office, and um, and a man on our team who was very delightful and and a really wonderful person, but he tended to fall in love with people in like two minutes. <laughs> And so right. he completely fell head over heels for this woman from Canada who we just met and um, was Facebook friending her at the table and doing their star charts to figure out if they were really the star-crossed lovers she thought oh they were. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and um, as uh, as myself and, and my, you know, co-manager of the team were trying desperately to figure out how to keep international relations to a professional, you know, minimum here between our two teams. Um, and so I, I think there's something, and this is going to sound so overwrought, but if you're going to hold a happy hour like that, um, know your <laughs> know your teammates um, know who know their strengths, know their weaknesses. Um, be able to, if you've got somebody on your team who falls in love with somebody in two minutes, um, you know, keep an eye on them. Make sure that, um, that you've got some ground rules for the team going in, um, and treat it really like a corporate meeting. You just happen to have cocktails in your hands. I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty smart. And um, and you know, through my corporate endeavors, I revealed a few moments ago that I was at a happy hour event and uh, a female coworker made clear that she'd had some feelings for me for some time. Uh, that was just one of those funny little things. And, you know, I got along with her just fine afterwards. Uh, I, cause I, I treat everything as respectfully as I could. And I've also been in the situation where somebody made advances toward me and I rebuffed them. And then they decided to complain about me for doing the thing that they themselves did. So I've been there, wow. too, and, 
you know, and, and, and that's a sad story, but I promise you we're going to end on a happy note. So we are pretty much at the end here. So uh, just tell our listeners uh, what it is that you do that helps business creators like us, and tell us where we can get this book that I need to buy a copy of myself. Sure. So Jennifer and I uh, run a communications consulting firm where we help large companies do a better job of connecting with and engaging their employees through um, thoughtful communication strategies. And we help uh, small companies and startups with on the marketing side uh, with uh, website creation, uh, social media strategies, and things of that nature. Because really, ultimately, Adam, whether you're talking about internal or external, um, it's about getting sharp on your story and then engaging your audiences around it. And uh, and you can certainly get a copy of BS Incorporated where um, all fine books are sold online. So that's Amazon.com, that's BarnesandNoble.com, um, and you can go straight to our distributor at uh, SeattleBookCompany.com. Um, you can also get us on iBooks. Uh, we are on ebooks and paperbacks um, all throughout those uh, those sites, and um, we would love for you to read a copy and, and get your feedback and the feedback of your listeners as well, and, and see how many of the stories in that book hold true for them. Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get it myself. I have a speaking engagement to go to in a couple of weeks, and I'm gonna need some some airplane reading material other than the. Uh, <laughs> The magazines that are in the in the thing, what have you, and yeah, I'm one of those people. I typically don't take my laptop or anything. Well, I mean, I I take it in my carry on, but I don't break my laptop out of the carry on while I'm on the plane. Uh, I use that as an opportunity to read a couple good books because there ain't nobody telling me to securely stow away my book, and that's a great <laughs> thing to make well, sure that uh, make sure that if my seatmate is uh, not of the uh, variety that I would want to converse with that I can make sure that we put pay to that pretty quickly. So I'll definitely well, be picking up your book uh, because I love to use that opportunity to read books about history and 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 hilarious takes on what we deal with every day. So I'm looking forward to it. Fabulous. Thank you. All right. So uh, this has been a fantastic time together. This is one of our light, more lighthearted episodes here at Business Creators Radio Show, but it's something we love to do every once in a while and something we know that our audience will relate to. So, uh, Michael Voss and Jennifer Rock, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Adam. Thank you. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, and on our iTunes channel. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.